Support for this podcast comes from Transform. Recruiting Feature is excited to announce a partnership with Transform. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. Transform 2024 promises to be the best yet. You can expect three days of powerful content, innovation showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, over 300 speakers, and energising after-hours networking Las Vegas style. So, come and meet me in Vegas on March the 11th through the 13th. Register now and save $200 by going to mattalder.me slash transform. That's mattalder.me slash transform. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 588 of the Recruiting Future podcast. Background checking is an area we've never really covered much on the podcast. In the past, it's just felt like a necessary but very functional part of the hiring process. However, with the explosion in our digital footprints and the power of AI, that has now changed. So how can background checks not only help prevent workplace misconduct, but also improve the quality of hire? Where does AI fit in? And how can we ensure that everything is legal and ethical? My guest this week is Ben Moniz, CEO and founder at Fama, an online screening technology company working with employers worldwide. If you haven't looked at what's happening in background screening for a while, this conversation with Ben will help you Get up to date with what is now possible. Hi, Ben, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be on. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Please, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? But of course, uh, my name is Ben Monis. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Fama. We're a talent screening company trying to reimagine what digital identity means and helping companies tap into, yeah, one of the world's richest data streams to answer that big question, how's this person going to act when they join my company around employees and customers? So, yeah, we're based out of the States, uh, California to be specific, but clients all over the globe, particularly a focus in the UK. And I am very grateful, Matt, to be here. So thanks a lot for having me. Oh, as I said, it's an absolute it's an absolute pleasure. Great stuff. Now you've got a really, really interesting approach to this area, which we'll sort of go into in a bit more detail. But I suppose just to set a bit of context about why this is important, tell us about the impact of workplace misconduct, of problems in hiring, those kind of things. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think workplace misconduct is one of these uh Interesting, you know, things that happens in the workplace that ultimately we're only looking at the sort of outcomes of workplace misconduct, the fines, the lawsuits, the uh, firings, the difficult conversations, right? Those those late night phone calls we in HR get, you know, about something that happened at a company event or something like that, that is now suddenly a, a big issue for HR to deal with the next morning. So when we think about workplace misconduct, we try to go back to the very beginning, right? How do we begin understanding the root cause or the root signal of workplace misconduct so that we can avoid those sorts of outcomes, right? Because the one thing I encourage folks to think 
uh, about, you know, maybe leaving this call or leaving this podcast here is, you know, it's not always about like doing the cost of doing business when it comes to workplace misconduct. This stuff is avoidable. In other words, like we know that when let's call it uh, misconduct happens inside of a company, there's a 1.6 X multiplier effect, meaning that misconduct is contagious. In other words, if someone comes in, let's say they act in a harassing, intolerant, threat, threatening way, maybe they, you know, commit some sort of fraud, seems light, you know, maybe something that they can get away with, you know, that that behavior, especially with leadership, becomes normalized. And that's something that in an organization, companies begin to sort of fester, if you will, and start to say, okay, well, one you know, example, one incident of workplace misconduct leads to 1.6x more misconduct. It's that sort of normalization. In other words, kind of quantifying that bad apple will spoil the bunch. So generally, you know, I think a lot of us feel this when it comes to the workplace, right? A lot of us know that, hey, if I'm in a meeting and somebody says something that might be a little bit uh, uh, misogynistic, call it, you know, call it, or maybe even intolerant to somebody based on what they look like, I'm not really focused on the topic at hand, right? I'm not really engaged in the subject matter. In fact, you know, you actually have real data. This comes from a Cornerstone On Demand in Harvard from a 2015 study, but productivity actually drops by 40% in toxic work environments and good people are 54% more likely to leave. Good people, meaning high performers, are 54% more likely to leave in that toxic work environment. So again, I think a lot of companies just think, oh, well, it happens. It's a part of doing business. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you it's not. And there are real costs and impacts of this sort of thing going unchecked within your business. And yeah, you can quote like the $5 trillion a year that fraud costs us, the employee theft costing U.S. businesses, and particularly we have some U.S. data on it, $50 billion a year. Sometimes those numbers just seem so big, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around and understand, okay, well, am I really part of that 50 billion? At the end of the day, I just say to folks, think about your company, you know, think about someone acting in a threatening or harassing way. What does that do to other people who are there? It has a negative impact. Good people want to leave and you're not focused. So you know, it, it's easy to kind of get down to earth with this stuff. Absolutely. And when it comes to background checking, it's something that everyone will be familiar with and use every day, but may not have that thought about it deeply for some time, if indeed ever. Give us a bit of context and tell us how background checking's evolved over the last 20 years or so. Sure. So, um, you know, background screening started really in the 1970s, actually, with lie detector tests. Believe it or not, like, before joining companies, and some listeners might remember, you would have to get hooked up to a lie detector machine, none of which worked, by the way, <laughs> and ask questions, you know, about you and your background, right? And so this, this sort of question of background screening, you saw a, a dramatic increase in the practice following 9-11, uh, particularly in the States, and, you know, seeing that feed out into the, the rest of the globe over the same period in the sort of early aughts, if you will. Um, but the, the the industry really around background screening, the, the the evolution, you know, per your question, answer it directly, has really been about going from, call it paper fulfillment, you know, literally paper and faxing to uh, digital background checks, going from, call it on-prem servers in the mid in the 2010s, right, to cloud-based servers, or going from offshore labor in 2015 to robotic process automation, right? So, a lot of the evolution of background screening, as I'm sure a lot of folks, you know, who, again, are listening can attest to, things have gotten cheaper. They've gotten faster. Uh, they've moved into the cloud. Hopefully it's not too many more pieces of paper that folks are dealing with. But at the end of the day, it remains sort of uh, focused on the same concept of qualification. I need to make sure this person is qualified. 
background screening. Did they go to the school they said they went to? Did they work at the job? Do they have in the UK the right to work, for example, right? Very basic qualifications about is this individual fit? What have they not done to answer the question of what will they? So, you know, the, the background screening evolution, I think only in the past five to 10 years or so have we started to see kind of this dramatic rethinking of what background screening could be. You see a lot of identity verification now happening. You see automated reference checking and, you know, solutions like ours, which begin to sort of look at a person's digital web presence to answer that question. You know, how's this person going to act when they join? And I think, you know, background screening is obviously it's very nuanced, but it's part of the broader market segment of talent screening and talent screening tools, which are all really designed to, again, answer that question. How's this person going to act when they join? And I think you're starting to see more companies drift towards, okay, well, maybe I don't need to run a drug test on somebody to make that assessment of how they're going to act. Maybe I should focus more on a psychometric assessment or skills-based assessments, that kind of thing. Again, answering that question, how are they going to act around employees and customers? Less, you know, are they qualified? So I think we're shaping up for a pretty dramatic rethinking of what background screening is going to look like. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose tell us a little bit more about what's changed, because with the explosion in data and content about people, people publishing their own content all over the all over the social web. I mean, how's that changed the dynamic? To quantify the the, the sort of I, I call it the, the Cambrian explosion of, uh, of digital information, right? You know, we're ex- I call it data exhaust too. We're, we're exhausting about 1.7 megabytes of data per second. I mean, and just think about that, right? Think about the amount of time that you're spending on a computer each day. When you're not at a computer, how much time are you spending on your phone? How much time are you watching a smart TV? Are you looking if you have young kids at a smart baby monitor, right? What about, you know, the the camera outside your home? So many of us are living now lives in the digital space so much more than in the analog space. And I think it's especially true for the the millennial and kind of Gen Z generation. And, you know, by the way, millennials are going to be the largest segment of the workforce here in in 2030, you know, by far. So as as more, you know, boomers of of age begin to to kind of retire and and enter into that kind of uh, golden phase of life, if you will. So if you begin thinking about this sort of like, concept of digital identity, who we are online, potentially becoming even richer, uh, more detailed, filled with, you know, more uh, uh, potential uh, types of insight than who we are offline. So too do hiring managers and recruiting teams begin thinking about how they can leverage that digital data stream when it comes to a hiring process. So a company called Resume Builder pointed out that, you know, three and four hiring managers, this is a 2023 study, are using social media to screen candidates and 55% of those folks use it to assess culture fit, 85% found content online that caused them, you know, not to hire a candidate. So I think we're just seeing more and more this kind of acceptance of, okay, there is signal that exists out there. And that signal, again, is only unlocked by the power of artificial intelligence to be able to filter through a million tweets in a matter of seconds or read an image without any text associated with it and assess whether or not there's a firearm or illegal drugs in that image, right? And then, of course, that data, those insights get passed to, you know, the the human, to the the human, to the HR leader, those folks who, you know, are kind of uh, uniquely designed uh, to apply their expertise and judgment to assess the meaning and implications of those insights, right? So, 
just keep in mind, like HR leaders are doing this because they see signal and they have that uniquely human trait of being able to apply expertise and judgment to assess the meaning and implications of those insights. So, yeah, it's a really interesting time we live in. And I think you're starting to see uh, HR leaders start grabbing uh, for power tools, if you will, when it comes to, to talent screening and, and, and the online web presence is one of them. Yeah, and I think you've really outlined the complexity of all of this in terms of the amount of data out there, what things might mean, you know, how things are con- how things are constructed. What are the dangers of hiring managers just doing their own screening, just performing their own data checks, just based on on what they can see? Yeah, we see this a lot, right? And and those numbers I just quoted, you know, um, often you know are our folks doing it internally, right? And I think one of the big dangers of doing this yourself, I'm, I'm sure, are is going to be common and something that folks, you know, who are listening in have probably heard from, you know, legal counterparts and their organizations or folks that are maybe senior to them on their teams. But, you know, if you do this yourself, meaning if I go out and I want to check the Facebook or I want to look up a candidate on Google or on Twitter or something like that and see what's out there, I might discover protected class information about that person, right? And that could be personal information that under the GDPR has no, and this is the UK extension too, has no business relevancy or no reason to view. For example, me finding out a person's gender, age, religion, or disability status, even accidentally, even unintentionally, puts me as a user in a very compromising position where I might even unknowingly use that information and impart more bias than I otherwise would have in the decision that I'm making about whether or not to hire this person. So, Ultimately, doing this yourself, you expose yourself to things that you shouldn't see, whereas turning to a third party, it essentially blinds you to what you shouldn't see and allows you to say, hey, let me know if there's anything out there that this person posted, uh, you know, that's anti-Semitic, that's hateful, that's violent, right? Maybe I want to know if, you know, I'm call it the NHS, for example, we did, I'll, I'll share a little bit of a case study here, but we did some work with the NHS uh, back during the, the vaccine rollout of 2020, where they were hiring, as, as you might remember, 25,000 people in a matter of weeks to give the jab, uh, you know, when the vaccine rolled out. And it was uh, a bit of a mess at the time. But, uh, you know, I think Boris got a lot of heat for it. But in any event, um, you know, they used us to make sure that, you know, they don't want to look at a person's disability, their age, their religion, etc. But they did need to know for the people that were given the jab, has anybody acted in a, a way where they promote anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, right? Do they have some hidden agenda coming in that should it exist, you know, could be potentially damaging to the health of citizens in the UK? And believe it or not, 250 people out of those 25,000. So again, a fraction, 1%, but 250 out of 25,000 people were posting anti-vaccine conspiracy theories online and didn't get hired by the NHS because of the tools that we put in place for them. A quick message from our sponsor, Winolo. Hi everyone, I want to tell you about Winolo. That's W-O-N-O-L-O. Winolo stands for Work Now Locally. Winolo enables businesses to find quality workers for on-demand, seasonal, short-term and long-term work. Ditch the bulky paperwork and interview process and use Winolo to find quality workers fast and get work done even faster. With flexible workers and no platform fees, you can save on operating costs, meet demand and maximise earnings with ease. Winolo is available in over 100 markets, including Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York and Seattle. 
get workers who are ready to work and spend less time finding them with Winolo. Go to www.winolo.com slash pod. That's www.wonolo.com slash pod and take the stress out of finding workers. You kind of sort of mentioned quite a few things about tools that are available and you know, what AI can do. Bring that together for us a little bit in terms of how do products like yours actually work and what do they do? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think the headline on on the role of AI in this world is that this is not automated decision making in the world of HR and talent acquisition. Now, there are tools that do that, but not what we do here at Fama and not you know, my, my personal philosophical view on the, the role of technology in the workplace. In other words, what AI is really good at is finding and analyzing a lot of information very quickly meaning compartmentalizing, organizing, structuring, pulling out that kind of uh, needle in the haystack, if you will. That's really what AI is good at. And what it does is it organizes raw information and tees that information up for a human, kind of like I mentioned before, to come in and apply their expertise and their judgment. And that expertise and judgment is born out of human experience, that human experience that you can't teach a machine, the edge cases, the, the, the unspoken moments, the body language, right? The reactions, everything that we've developed to hone, call it our professional skill set, to sharpen our professional swords, if you will, all of that then comes into play and is substantially, I'll just say, increased in scope. And it puts us in a position where as humans, we can now start making more informed decisions more quickly but also spending more time doing that kind of assessment of the information, applying our expertise, applying our judgment about the implications of what this data means, what it's telling us, how it's going to affect us in the real world, rather than spending the time collecting the information, compartmentalizing it, organizing it, and then teeing it up for, you know, review and analysis. So I would say, you know, the the big, big takeaway is that, you know, AI is not doing the decision-making in our world. But what AI is doing is putting you in a position to bring you to the precipice of action. You mentioned compliance with various bits of legislation there, the dangers around this. And also there's an ethical angle in terms of looking deep into people's personal lives as well. How do you make sure that you stay on the right side of the line when it comes to, first of all, compliance, but also doing this in an ethical way? Sort of a basic answer to the question, which is that there are pre-existing frameworks across, you know, a lot of the new AI legislation rolling out in Europe, the GDPR, of course, the FCRA in the United States, PEPIDA in Canada, a wide range of privacy legislation that essentially you got to be compliant with, not just to protect, you know, companies, to protect the service provider, but to protect candidates' privacy, right? So what does that mean in practice? It means that you have to get you know, consent to run this check. The candidate has to have informed consent, know this sort of thing is happening, right? You can't look at private information. You can't go into a person's private life and start seeing the private messages or if their account is private to fake it and you know, try to friend them, get behind some privacy wall. Um, also to, you know, again, remove some of these protected classes from inside, uh, you know, from the insights we provide and only, you know, highlight what customers deem is potentially adverse or relevant to knowing about for that job at hand. And then, you know, again, building the artificial intelligence in a way 
uh, and the technology in a way that is as as least biased as possible and reflected in the people who are building it, right? So, you know, at Fama, we, we do a lot on ethical AI, but our approach is pretty simple, is that we want the people who are building the technology to reflect the communities and customers that we serve. So whether it's our leadership team, which is 50% male and female, the organization, which 50% identifies as non-white, you know, our entire company, again, 50-50 on the uh, sort of, you know, gender split, if you will, uh, so again, it's it's a bunch of factors that go into uh, you know developing a compliant and ethical solution, and one is just staying compliant within the guardrails of how a series of uh, legislations from across the globe all kind of coalesce to to become this single privacy framework, but also building technology in a way you know that allows us to uh, uh, feel confident that you know we're not uh, yeah putting anything out there that's going to induce bias. Lots of talent acquisition professionals will be listening. Tell us how this approach can influence the quality of hire. For us, quality of hire really means, again, answering this big question, how's this person going to act? How do I limit my downside when they join the company? How are they going to act around fellow employees, fellow customers, right? So quality of hire, in other words, is like finding people with the right skills and right fit you know, for the role. And just because somebody can do a job, Meaning just because they're qualified doesn't mean that they have that kind of fit that they're going to represent the values of your organization internally and champion the culture that they're going to, you know, extend the values of your brand in the eyes of your customers. So, you know, really for us, that means being able to look at patterns of behavior previously to joining the company where you get that insight, again, not just from social media, but also uh, from a person's, you know, complete digital identity, right? So, you know, we've seen everything. If you consider this like proxy of how we act online is going to have an impact of how we act off of it. You know, we've seen everything, uh, you know, from doctors selling body parts online, you know, people applying to camp counselor jobs uh, who have, call it uh, sex offender backgrounds, you know, around children. We have people who have posted about threatening to hurt fellow coworkers or employees executives who have created boys club cultures, maybe they weren't named in, you know, a lawsuit, but there are articles or blogs out there about them that have been substantiated, right? And so really, again, it's about generating that signal to answer that basic question where so many of us are already doing this today. We're already seeking to answer this question of how can I limit my downside? How can I ask the right questions in the interview process? How can I ask the right questions? Am I referencing workflow? How do I go through all of my validation steps to make sure that I'm limiting my downside? Now, what we do with online web presence is, you know, injecting that into the overall equation. So as a final question to you, where does this go next? What does the future look like? I mean, I I think you're going to see a a continued sort of adoption of of companies turning to the online record, right? And I don't think it's it's just for risk management either. I don't think you're just going to see folks saying, oh, well, I need to manage risk, manage my downside. Artificial intelligence every day, especially generative AI, is unlocking new capabilities at a scale that, you know, frankly, Matt, we just haven't haven't seen before. So what that means is that we can now begin looking at the language that people are creating online, the words that people are writing, the videos that they're appearing in, right, and actually begin running psychometric and professional competency analysis on that language in the same way that folks might fill out a Gallup Finder assessment or 
answer templated questions as part of an overall talent screening assessment, we can begin looking at that language that people are posting online and begin, you know, generating actual conclusions about the professional competencies and psychometric network, uh, psychometric, cap- uh, uh, excuse me, uh, intricacies of that person um, based simply on the words they're creating online. So there's so much power in unpacking the meaning within text, you know, especially text that's created by a human in a primary format online, um, that there's a lot we can do with it from uh, assessing quality of hiring, even things like talent acquisition. So that's probably another podcast. More to, more to- <laughs> I've got so many questions about that. I think it's going to have to be. Ben, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much for having me and uh, really appreciate the time. My thanks to Ben. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Recruiting Future Feast, and get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time, and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.